Every story has a simple shape. That was part of Kurt Vonnegut's uh, master's thesis. It was, in fact, rejected by the University of Chicago. But he continued to talk about it and teach about it throughout his life. And he called it his prettiest contribution to his culture. And the first shape he would draw was called man in a hole. And it was not necessarily about a man or a hole. It was just about someone who got into trouble and then eventually gets out of trouble and at the end is a little better off than when they started. And he said, people love this story. <laughs> story is everywhere. He, if you've read his books, was not one of those people. <laughs> every story has a shape. And so does every economy coming out of a recession. There are V-shaped recoveries, a sudden drop in the economy, and then it bounces back really quickly. That's best case scenario, right? Then there are U-shaped economies where it drops and then it tumbles along for a few quarters before it comes back. Then there are L-shaped recoveries that are long and drawn out, can last for years, like the, the Depression in the 1930s. The big question at the beginning of COVID-19 was, what's the shape of the economy going to look like coming out of this? Is it going to be a, a V, a U, or an L? And what surprised everybody, that it was none of these. It was, in fact, a combination, a new letter, the letter K. So what that means is for some people, it was like the top part of that K was like a V. They bounced back. They were doing great. They were thriving, whether that was individuals or institutions or companies. While others have experienced a downward L, actually, a decline. And that can happen not just uh, with different people groups and companies, but within even the same company, that letter K, within the same institution, within the same church. What, that, what happens is then you get this growing disparity between those who are thriving and those who are doing well economically and even in other ways and those who are not. And when that happens, people start losing trust in social institutions, right? People start to protest. It leads to political, social instability, like what we're seeing more and more today. There's a great article by the author Andy Crouch who addresses these shapes in this article. He wrote it last year, in fact, and you can find it on the Praxis website, this group given to advancing redemptive entrepreneurship. A great site to, a site to check out. But in the article, he asks this question, how do you recover from a K-shaped recovery? Good question. And really what he's asking, though, is even bigger than that. He's asking, how do we re recover from a K-shaped world? Economically, but not just economically, in all the different ways we relate to each other in society and life. And to answer that question, he goes back in history to the ancient world, which he said could be extremely K-shaped at times, if you read history. And he writes this, quote, 
Disease and famine could lead to crippling debt. War could displace families and communities, even whole nations. Not unlike what we're seeing in Ukraine. All of these, he said, led to enslavement, the ultimate loss of freedom, the ultimate K-shaped social reality. And again, in, in Ukraine, we're seeing not just the oppression of Ukrainians by Russia, but we're seeing the rise in human trafficking with women and children. It always accompanies war. And then he finishes by saying, and for society that's always in danger of going K-shaped, God prescribed Jubilee. Jubilee was prescribed in the Jewish law, and it was a type of Sabbath, a super Sabbath. It was supposed to happen every seven times seven years, about every 50 years. And every seven years, there was a Sabbath that the Israelites were supposed to observe where slaves were liberated, debts were forgiven, and even the land itself was given a rest for one whole year. It was a major rest for, for people and even the land, and a major reset for society out of this K-shaped reality. And then every seven times, seven years during this super Sabbath of Jubilee, what also was going to happen was anybody who lost their land during those years was given that land back. So all was liberated, all was forgiven, all was restored. That was a redemptive movement from a K-shaped world to a J-shaped world, a jubilee-shaped world. Today is Juneteenth, a significant date in American history. Marking the end of slavery in the U.S., now before this date, the Emancipation Proclamation became law of course, in January of 1863. But that law couldn't be enforced in places that were still under Confederate control, places like Texas. So it wasn't until two and a half years later, on June 19th, 1865, two and a half years later, that federal troops finally, finally came to, to Galveston, Texas to take control of the state and liberate enslaved African Americans in Texas. From the beginning, this day has also been called Jubilee, Jubilee Day, because this, this day was actually first celebrated in black churches that were soaked with the Old Testament scriptures, that talked about the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that talked about Jubilee when slaves were released, freed, liberated, that talked basically about God and his people following his lead, turning a K-shaped world into a J-shaped world. Now, of course, we haven't fully arrived there yet. Jubilee, Juneteenth is a movement in the right direction. But there's a lot of K that needs to turn into a J, right? And even when you do that, K keeps creeping back like weeds in a garden. There's always work to be done along these lines. 
But we can be confident of this. A fully J-shaped world is coming and will be the final permanent reality. That's a promise from God himself. It's coming. And we can be part of it. Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, wrote that all of creation is longing for this, groaning for this. And he does that in us, too, if we're his people. We've been working our way through Romans. That was a big, maybe, introduction, but an important one to our passage in Romans, chapter 8. And you can go there if you would like. If you want to look at verses 18 to 24, I'm going to go verse by verse here again. And Paul starts by saying this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. That's a big statement. The glory about to be revealed to us is that final Sabbath that Sabbath of Sabbaths, that Jubilee of Jubilees. It's the Juneteenth taken all the way for all people. It's the final reality of that dream that Martin Luther King was dreaming about. It's the new creation finally come, all things as it should be. Paul in the Spirit saw that from afar. And he compared it with the suffering that we experience in this life. He started to. He compared that with the coming glory. In the previous chapter, you talked about being with Jesus means suffering with Jesus and being glorified with Jesus. It means both of these things as a believer. And I think if you're a a Christian and you're going through hard times or if you are suffering, especially if you are suffering as a Christian, because you're a Christian, Sometimes you wonder and you ask, is it worth it? Is it worth the glory that's coming? And Paul is saying, yes, it is. It's more than worth it. You can't even compare it. The weight of glory just crushes the scales. It's not even worth your time to try and compare, is what Paul has seen. And then look at what Paul says next. What he connects to this. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Why does he say that? How does he connect that? Well, first Paul says creation itself, not just the people of creation, but somehow creation is waiting for this, longing for this, groaning for this, with eager expectation, on tiptoe, so to speak, as, a, as the Phillips translation puts it. And what's creation waiting for, longing for? For the revealing of the children of God. Now Paul says, or, or John actually, if you go to 1 John, he says we're already children of God, but it's not yet revealed what we will be. There's some hiddenness there. We don't fully see what it means to be a child of God yet. We get a foretaste, but we don't fully see that. Even here in this passage and other passages, Paul talks about us being already adopted children of God 
through the spirit of adoption. But then in verse 25, he says, we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Our redemption with our Father isn't going to be complete until these broken bodies are made new and immortal. So the already not yetness applies to us being adopted children of God too. The, the Spirit of God gives life to our mortal bodies even now, awakens our senses to God and to the things of God. But we still need to be resurrected one day by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to lead us in this life, into communion with God, into communion with each other, into a Rosetto kind of living like we talked about last week, into care for creation, which we haven't talked about, which we need to talk more about. But we don't do that perfectly yet. We don't do that universally by far. We don't see that. So our true identity and glory as children of God is yet to be revealed. And creation longs for that day. Is expectant for that day. Because instead of turning creation, ruining creation, the children of God are going to be caring for it, as we should be. We'll be blessing it. We'll be creating a God-honoring culture that stewards creation the way God created us to in Genesis. Making, creating culture, but culture that actually works with creation, blesses creation. Instead of spilling each other's blood on the earth, we're going to be recognizing one another for who we really are, honoring one another for who we really are, serving and tending one another on the earth, in the new earth. That's something to look forward to. That's what creation is longing for. That's what the Spirit wants us to long for. And so much we even start to enter it now. Paul goes on, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. The Greek word for futility here is the Greek word used for the Hebrew word, it's a little complicated. The Greek, I'll say it again. The Greek word here used for fertility, futility is the Greek word that's used for that Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes, where it says everything is vanity. Now, a better or literal translation of Ecclesiastes is everything is vapor. And if you read Ecclesiastes, that's going to change your reading of Ecclesiastes. Just a little side note. But with that, we could say the whole creation has been subjected to vapor. Like vapor, everything eventually dissipates, evaporates. Like vapor, everything is just hard to grasp. It slips through our fingers so much. And that leads to great frustration and futility. And the more you live, the more you feel that. And you agree with the author of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vapor. Well, the created order didn't ask for this. <laughs> this was imposed upon it. This was a consequence of the fall, according to the story of Adam and Eve, when they should have been reflecting God as his image bearers, tending in the garden, creating God-honoring culture. Instead, they fell from grace and subjected creation to vapor. 
But, Paul writes, this was done in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement. If you read this passage, there's a lot of echoes of of the exodus and slavery. Paul's saying here, even creation is experiencing enslavement to decay, but will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is going to share in that. Creation itself has been enslaved and looks forward to its own Juneteenth, so to speak. That day when all people will no longer do things that enslave creation. Right? They're going to share in, instead of the, the creation is going to share in that freedom of the, the glory of the children of God, where all are liberated, every person, young and old, when all things and every person in Christ is liberated, forgiven, restored through Christ. Paul goes on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. So creation is here. It, it waits with eager expectation but with groaning because things aren't the way they're supposed to be yet. Creation is still suffering. We're still suffering. So creation is groaning, but what a beautiful image Paul gives and interprets this suffering with. He says, these are the pains of labor, which means a birth is coming. The birth of the new creation is on its way. That's what this suffering means. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 18. He described these coming wars and famines and earthquakes, and then he said, these are but the beginning of birth pangs. That's an interesting way, a hopeful way to interpret the suffering we go through. The sufferings and tribulations and groanings of creations are actually labor pains for the new creation. That's what the Spirit does in us. They're promises, tokens, that a J-shaped world is coming from top to bottom, inside and out. That is going to be, that's what's coming, the final permanent reality. Paul goes on. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I think we who are believers, we experience a different kind of suffering and groaning at times. We hear about the coming glory that's coming when all things are are liberated, forgiven, restored, and that's exciting and that gives us much hope and encouragement. But man, that really pronounces how far we are from that at times. We just see more clearly the K-shaped nature of our world and that can bring us to weep it should unless our hearts have been hardened especially if the spirit 
dwells in us. The Spirit is groaning, and when the Spirit dwells in us, He brings that groaning in us, produces it in us, intercedes with us. But this groaning is filled with hope, given this image. This We don't grieve like the world grieves without hope, Paul says in other places. Hope for what's coming. Paul uses the word hope five times in the next two verses we finish with. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're waiting for that glory to come. That means we don't see it yet. The full glory of the children of God isn't here yet. We're waiting for it with patience. Now, patience doesn't mean passivity. Oh, God's going to take care of it and fix it one day, so I don't have to do anything in the meantime to address culture, to change the way we relate to each other in culture, to address people's living conditions. That's not what Paul's talking about. That is a temptation of this hope that Christians have succumbed to many times. This is something that Karl Marx saw in Christians of his day, and he critiqued it. And on this point, I think he was right. No, Paul says we're meant to be the first fruits of the Spirit. That starts with groaning, but is meant to give a foretaste of what's coming. Believers are supposed to be a community that represent, that illustrate, that show people what it's like to be liberated from debt, to forgive one another, to live reconciled with one another. That's what we're supposed to be. Not with passivity, but still with patience. Passivity and impatience are two ditches on this road. Impatience will ruin this. Impatience means you're going to become part of the problem. Impatience means you may come to the point of being violent to other people because of how impatient you are for this. You want too much, too fast, like what we've seen in Marxist revolutions. The late historian and Dutch Libri worker Hans Ruckmarker used to have a saying that summarized this biblical way of patient hope that avoids passivity and impatience. And it was this. Weep, pray, think, work. And in that order. Weep, pray, Think, work. Weep first for what's, all that's lost, all that's broken. There's a lot of that. That's what's emphasized in this passage. This groaning is in that vein. Weeping for what's broken. Groaning. And I think that at times might feel like a waste of time for some of us. That might look like weakness to some of us. But that, in fact, is keeping in step with the Spirit of God. He is groaning and brings that into us. 
And if we don't groan, we're out of step with the Spirit of God. The Spirit who turns our weeping into labor pains, into hopeful expectation for what's coming, right? For longing, desiring the kingdom. Few things change us and move us more than what we hope for, than what we desire for, than what we weep for. That's why it starts there. Spirit turns our weeping into groans, and from there he turns our weeping into prayer. Weeping that can be a type of prayer. It leads to intercession. And that's in fact what comes next in Romans. We didn't get to today. We heard it this morning. But we'll get to that in two weeks from now. For the glory, we're praying for the glory of the kingdom of God to come. We're praying for as much foretaste of that as we can, as much of that to be revealed now as is possible. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for resources, for strength and inspiration to think clearly, creatively, redemptively. For how to answer the kind of jubilee questions we need to ask. How can we bring relief to people and groups and even nations? How can we bring relief to crippling debt? That crushes them. If you don't know debt, you don't know what that's like to live under debt. How can we help to bring any enslaved people in all its shapes, how can we bring freedom to enslaved creation? We can start to think clearly about that in the spirit. And then we get to work in the spirit. But if we don't start and stay in the Spirit, first with weeping, and then groaning for, and interceding for, and thinking redemptively, our work is going to be short-lived. It's going to be misdirected. It's not going to last. And it may even turn violent at times. So weep. Pray. Think. Work in the spirit, in that order, for a J-shaped world. May it be so.